0: Good evening, gentle listeners. My name is Rich Outfield, and you are listening to the podcast that dares not speak its name. Usually uh, I'm in a quieter environment. <laughs> it's deafening, isn't it? Usually I'm in a quieter environment for these episodes. The rule of thumb is if I'm at home or indoors recording, it is a podcast that dares not speak its name, and if I'm on the road, it's an outcast, but I've been doing a series of these, where I read someone else's story, and I'd like to call those podcasts that dare not speak their name to keep it straight in my head, in case there are people that only like those, or don't like those, or listen to my podcast at all. I know, Slim Chance. But the two shows are pretty much identical anyway. Well, if somebody once asked me why I keep doing the other podcast, and I didn't have an adequate answer. Still don't. But anyhow, I've got a story ready to go for you. I finished editing it yesterday, and I was on the fence about sharing it with you. It was a story that I recorded a couple of weeks back from this big book of mostly British horror stories, ghost stories that I got from a thrift store years ago. I put it in my suitcase and it's always at the cabin. In the back of my mind it was like, well, if ever something happens and I'm stuck for some extra time, I'll have this to read. And it's it served me well. I've gotten several stories from it just to read for pleasure and then I've done a couple of episodes based on those stories like the M.R. James one and uh, there's another M.R. James story coming down the pipe I I guess I could put it out before this one but I wasn't planning on it Uh, a lot of those stories are in the public domain M.R. James lived long enough or I guess technically died long enough ago that is stuff, is public domain, and um, we can talk about that on another occasion or not at all, uh, whether that's a good thing or not. I, I always get in arguments with my friend Jeff about it. He believes the copyright should terminate the moment the author is dead, which doesn't make any sense to me. And I, I, one time I even said, you know, you used to want to be a writer. Wouldn't you want your kids to benefit from your writings? And, and he said no. I want my kids to make their own way. And I just... uh, We've had many arguments, he's got all sorts of fun uh, opinions, he seems to believe that anybody should be able to tell Superman stories or Mickey Mouse stories or, you know, stories from characters that have been around for a long time. And yeah, let's shelve that. (laughs) Like I said two full minutes ago, we'll talk about that in another opportunity. So today I'll be presenting to you a story called The Leaden Ring by Sabine Baring-Gould. And, oh, a moment ago I said that I was on the fence about whether to share this story with you or not. I will elaborate after the story. I hope that you enjoy it. Once again, this is a British author, and... uh, I'm not. One of my many shortcomings. Hope you can forgive me. Sabine Baring Gould was an an English author, novelist, folk song, collector, and scholar, and an Anglican priest. He wrote many novels, including The Broom Squire, The Lives of the Saints, and... uh, published nearly 200 short stories in assorted magazines and periodicals. However, he is best known as being the writer of hymns such as Now the Day is Over, Sing Lullaby, and Onward, Christian Soldiers. He died in 1924. The Leaden Ring. By S. Baring Gould. It is not possible, Julia. I cannot conceive how the idea of attending the county ball can have entered your head after what has happened. Poor young Hattersley's dreadful death suffices to stop that. But Aunt, Mister Hattersley is no relation of ours. No relation but you know that the poor fellow would not have shot himself if it had not been for you. Oh, Aunt Elizabeth, how can you say so, when the verdict was that he committed suicide when in an unsound condition of mind? How could I help his blowing out his brains when those brains were deranged? Julia, do not talk like this. If he did go off his head, it was you who upset him by first drawing him on leading him to believe that you liked him, and then throwing him over as soon as the Honourable James Lawlaw appeared on the tapis. And consider, what will people say if you go to the Assembly? Well, what would they say if I do not go? They will immediately set it down to my caring deeply for James Hattersley, and they will think that there was some sort of engagement. They are not likely to suppose that. You were for a while, all smiles and encouragement, tell me now did mr hattersley propose to you well yes he did and i refused him and then he went and shot himself in despair juliet you cannot with any face go to the ball nobody knows that he proposed and precisely because i do go everyone will conclude that he did not propose i do not wish it to be supposed that he did his family of course must have been aware "'They will see your name among those present at the assembly. "'Aunt, they are in too great trouble to look at the paper to see who was at the dance. "'His terrible death lies at your door. How how can you have the heart, Julia?' "'I don't see it. Of course I feel it. I am awfully sorry, "'and awfully sorry for his father, the Admiral. I cannot bring him to life again.' I wish that when I rejected him, he had gone and done, as did Joe Pomeroy, marry one of his landlady's daughters. There, Julia, is another of your delinquencies. You lured on young Pomeroy until he proposed. Then you refused him, and in a fit of vexation and mortified vanity, he married a girl greatly beneath him in social position. If the menage proves a failure, you will have it on your conscience that you have wrecked his life, and perhaps hers as well. I cannot throw myself away as a charity to save this man or that from doing a foolish thing. What I complain of, Julia, is that you encouraged young Mr. Pomeroy till Mr. Hattersley appeared, whom you thought more eligible, and then you tossed him aside and you did precisely the same with James Hattersley as soon as you came to know Mr. lawlor After all, Julia, I am not so sure that Mr. Pomeroy has not chosen the better part. The girl I dare say, is simple, fresh and affectionate. Your implication is not complimentary, Aunt Elizabeth. My dear, I have no patience with the young lady of the present day, who is shallow, self-willed and indifferent to the feelings and happiness of others, who craves excitement and pleasures and desires nothing that is useful and good. Where now will you see a girl like Viola's sister who let concealment like a worm in the bud feed on her damask cheek. Nowadays a girl lays herself at the feet of a man if she likes him, turns herself inside out to let him, and all the world read her heart. I have no relish to be like Viola's sister and have my story a blank. I never grovelled at the feet of Joe Pomeroy or James Hattersley. No, but you led each to consider himself the favoured one till he proposed... And then you refused him. It was like smiling at a man and then stabbing him to the heart. Well, I don't want people to think that James Hattersley cared for me. I certainly never cared for him, nor that he proposed. So I shall go to the ball. Julia Demont was an orphan. She had been kept at school till she was 18 and then had been removed just at the age when a girl begins to take an interest in her studies, and not to regard them as drudgery. On her removal she had cast away all that she had acquired, and had been plunged into the whirl of society. Then suddenly her father died, she had lost her mother some years before, and she went to live with her aunt, Miss Fleming. Julia had inherited a sum of about five hundred pounds a year, and would probably come in for a good estate and funds as well on the death of her aunt. She had been flattered as a girl at home and at school as a beauty, and she certainly thought no small bones of herself. Miss Fleming was an elderly lady with a sharp tongue, very outspoken and very decided in her opinions. But her action was weak, and Julia soon discovered that she could bend her aunt to do anything she willed she could not modify or alter her opinions in the matter of joe pomeroy and james hattersley it was as miss fleming had said julia had encouraged mr pomeroy and had only cast him off because she thought better of the suit of mr hattersley son of an admiral of that name she had seen a good deal of young hattersley had given him every encouragement had so entangled him that he was madly in love with her and then, when she came to know the Honourable James Lawlor, and saw that he was fascinated, she rejected Hattersley with the consequences alluded to in the conversation above given. Julia was particularly anxious to be present at the country ball, for she had been already booked by Mr. Lawlor for several dances, and she was quite resolved to make an attempt to bring him to a declaration. On the evening of the ball, Miss Fleming and Julia entered the carriage, the aunt had given way as was her wont but under protest for about 10 minutes neither spoke and then miss fleming said well you know my feelings about this dance i do not approve i distinctly disapprove i do not consider your going to the ball in good taste or as you would put it in good form poor young hattersley oh dear aunt do let us put young hattersley aside he was buried with the regular forms i suppose yes julia then the rector accepted the verdict of the jury at the inquest why should not we a man who is unsound in his mind is not responsible for his actions i suppose not much less then i who live ten miles away i do not say that you are responsible for his death but for the condition of mind that led him to do the dreadful deed. Really, Julia, you are one of those into whose head or heart only by a surgical operation could the thought be introduced that you could be in the wrong. A hypodermic syringe would be too weak an instrument to effect such a radical change in you. Everyone else may be in the wrong. You never. As for me, I cannot get young Hattersley out of my head. And I retorted Julia with asperity, for her aunt's words had stung her. I, for my part, do not give him a thought. She had hardly spoken the words before a chill wind began to pass round her. She drew the barrage shawl that was over her bare shoulders closer about her and said, Auntie, is the glass down on your side? No, Julia, why do you ask? There is such a draught. Draft? Draft? "'I do not feel one. Perhaps the window on your side hitches.' "'Indeed, that is all right. It is blowing harder and is deadly cold. "'Can one of the front panes be broken?' "'No, Rogers would have told me had that been the case. "'Besides, I can see that they are sound.' "'The wind of which Julia complained swirled and whistled about her. "'It increased in force. It plucked at her shawl and sluted about her throat. "'It tore at the lace on her dress.' It snatched at her hair, it wrenched it away from the pins. The combs that held it in place, one long tress, was lashed across the face of Miss Fleming. Then the hair, completely released, eddied up above the girl's head, and the next moment was carried as a drift before her, blinding her. Then a sudden explosion, as though a gun had been fired into her ear, and with a scream of terror she sank back among the curtains. Miss Fleming, in great alarm, pulled the check string, and the carriage stopped. The footman descended from the box and came to the side. The old lady drew down the window and said, Oh, Phillips, bring the lamp. Something has happened to Miss Demand." The man obeyed and sent a flood of light into the carriage. Julia was lying back, white and senseless. Her hair was scattered over her face, neck and shoulders. The flowers that had been stuck in it, the pins that had fastened it in place, the pads that had given shape to the convolutions lay strewn, some on her lap, some in the rug at the bottom of the carriage. Phillips, ordered the old lady in great agitation, tell Rogers to turn the horses and drive home at once. And do you run as fast as you can for Dr. Crate? A few minutes after the carriage was again in motion, julia revived her aunt was chafing her hand oh aunt she said are all the glasses broken broken what glasses those of the carriage with the explosion explosion my dear yes that gun which was discharged it stunned me were you hurt i heard no gun no explosion but i did It was as though a bullet had been discharged into my brain. I wonder that I escaped. Who can have fired at us? My dear, no one fired. I heard nothing, but I know what it was. I had the same experience many years ago. I slept in a damp bed and awoke stone deaf in my right ear. I remained so for three weeks. But one night, when I was at a ball and was dancing, all at once I heard a report as of a pistol in my right ear and immediately heard quite clearly again it was wax but aunt elizabeth i have not been deaf you have not noticed that you were deaf oh but look at my hair it was the wind that blew it about you are laboring under a delusion julia there was no wind but look feel how my hair is down that has been done by the motion of the carriage there are many ruts in the road. They reached home, and Julia, feeling sick, frightened, and bewildered, retired to bed. Dr. Crade arrived, said that she was hysterical, and ordered something to soothe her nerves. Julia was not convinced. The explanation offered by Miss Fleming did not satisfy her. That she was a victim to hysteria, she did not in the least believe. Neither her aunt, Nor the coachman, nor Phillips had heard the discharge of a gun. As to the rushing wind, Julia was satisfied that she had experienced it. The lace was ripped, as if by a hand, from her dress, and the shawl was twisted about her throat. Besides, her hair had not been so slightly arranged that the jolting of the carriage would completely disarrange it. She was vastly perplexed over what she had undergone. She thought and thought, but could get no nearer to a solution of the mystery. Next day, as she was almost herself again, she rose and went about as usual. In the afternoon, the Honourable James Lawlor came and asked after Miss Fleming. The butler replied that his mistress was out making calls, but that Miss DeMont was at home, and he believed was on the terrace. Mr. Lawlor at once asked to see her. He did not find Julia in the parlour or on the terrace— but in a lower garden to which she had descended to feed the goldfish in the pond. "'Oh, Miss Demont, Mont,' said he, "'I was so disappointed not to see you at the ball last night.' "'I was very unwell. I had a fainting fit, and could not go.' "'It threw a damp on our spirits, that is to say, on mine. "'I had you booked for several dances.' "'You were able to give them to others.' "'But that was not the same to me. I—' did an act of charity and self-denial. I danced instead with the ugly Miss Burgans and with Miss Pounding, and that was like dragging about a sack of potatoes. I believe it would have been a jolly evening, but for that shocking affair of young Hattersley, which kept some of the better sort away. I mean, those who knew the Hattersleys. Of course, for me, that did not matter. We were not acquainted. I never even spoke with the fellow. You knew him, I believe. I heard some people say so and that you had not come because of him. The supper for a subscription ball was not atrociously bad. What did they say of me? Oh, if you will know, that you did not attend the ball because you liked him very much and were awfully cut up. I, what a shame that people should talk. I never cared a rush for him. He was nice enough in his way, not a bounder, but tolerable as young men go. Mr. Lalor laughed. I should not relish to have such a qualified estimate made of me. Nor need you. You are interesting. He became so only when he had shot himself. It will be by this alone that he will be remembered. But there is no smoke without fire. Did he like you much? Dear Mr. lalor I am not a clairvoyant, and never was able to see into the brains or hearts of people, least of all young men. Perhaps it is fortunate for me that I cannot. One lady told me that he had proposed to you. Who was that? The potato sack? I will not give her name. Is there any truth in it? Did he? No. At the moment she spoke. There sounded in her ear a whistle of wind, and she felt a current, like a cord of ice, creep round her throat. Increasing in force and compression, her hat was blown off, and next instant, a detonation rang through her head as though a gun had been fired into her ear. She uttered a cry and sank upon the ground. James Lalor was bewildered. His first impulse was to run to the house for assistance. Then he considered that he could not leave her lying on the wet soil and he stooped to raise her in his arms and to carry her within. In novels young men perform such a feat without difficulty, but in fact they are not able to do it, especially when the girl is tall and big-boned. Moreover, one in a faint is a dead weight. Lalor staggered under his burden to the steps. It was as much as he could perform to carry her up to the terrace, and there he placed her on a seat. Panting, and with his muscles quivering after the strain, he hastened to the drawing-room, rang the bell, and when the butler appeared, he gasped, "'Mr. Mantis fainted. You and I and the footman must carry her within.' "'She fainted last night in the carriage,' said the butler. When Julia came to her senses, she was in bed, attended by the housekeeper and her maid. A few moments later, Miss Fleming arrived. "'Oh, aunt, I have heard it again.' "'Heard what, dear?' "'The discharge of a gun.' "'It is nothing but wax,' said the old lady. "'I will drop a little sweet oil into your ear "'and then have it syringed with warm water. "'I want to tell you something in private.' "'Miss Fleming signed to the servants to withdraw. "'Aunt,' said the girl, "'I must say something. "'This is the second time that this has happened.' "'I am sure it is significant. "'James Larlaw was with me in the sunken garden, "'and he began to speak about James Hattersley. "'You know it was when we were talking about him last night "'when I heard that awful noise. "'It was precisely as if a gun had been discharged into my ear. "'I felt as if all the nerves and tissues of my head were being torn "'and all the bones of my skull shattered, "'just what Mr. Hattersley must have undergone when he pulled the trigger. "'It was an agony for a moment, perhaps.' "'but it felt as if it lasted an hour. "'Mr. Lalor had asked me point-blank "'if James Hattersley had proposed to me, "'and I said no. "'I was perfectly justified in so answering, "'because he had no right to ask me such a question. "'It was an impertinence on his part, "'and I answered him shortly and sharply with a negative. "'But actually, James Hattersley proposed twice to me. "'He would not accept a first refusal, "'but came next day bothering me again.' and I was pretty curt with him. He made some remarks that were rude about how I had treated him, and which I will not repeat. And as he left, in a state of great agitation, he said, Julia, I vow that you shall not forget this, and you shall belong to no one but me, alive or dead. I considered this great nonsense, and did not accord it another thought. But really, these terrible annoyances, this wind and the bursts of noise, do seem to me to come from him it is just as though he felt a malignant delight in distressing me now that he is dead i should like to defy him and i will do it if i can but i cannot bear more of these experiences they will kill me several days elapsed mr Lawlor called repeatedly to inquire but a week passed before julia was sufficiently recovered to receive him And then the visit was one of courtesy and of sympathy, and the conversation turned upon her health, and on indifferent themes. But some few days later it was otherwise. She was in the conservatory alone, pretty much herself again, when Mr. Lawlor was announced. Physically she had recovered, or believed that she had, but her nerves had actually received a severe shock she had made up her mind that the phenomena of the circling wind and the explosion were in some mysterious manner connected with Hattersley. She bitterly resented this, but she was in mortal terror of a recurrence, and she felt no compunction for her treatment of the unfortunate young man, but rather a sense of deep resentment against him. If he were dead, why did he not lie quiet and cease from vexing her? To be a martyr was to her no gratification, for hers was not a martyrdom that provoked sympathy, and which could make her interesting. She had hitherto supposed that when a man died there was an end of him, his condition was determined for good or for ill, but that a disembodied spirit should hover about and make itself a nuisance to the living had never entered into her calculations. "'Julia, if I may be allowed so to call you,' began Mr. Lawlor. "'I have brought you a bouquet of flowers. "'Will you accept them?' "'Oh,' she said, as he handed the bunch to her. "'How kind of you. "'At this time of the year they're so rare. and aunt's gardener is so miserly "'that he will spare me none for my room "'but some miserable bits of geranium. "'It is too bad of your wasting your money like this upon me.' "'It is no waste, if it affords you pleasure.' "'It is a pleasure. "'I dearly love flowers.' To give you pleasure, said Mr. Lawlor, is the great object of my life. If I could assure you happiness, if you would allow me to hope, to seize this opportunity, now that we are alone together. He drew near and caught her hand. His features were agitated, his lips trembled. There was an earnestness in his eyes. At once a cold blast touched Julia and began to circle about her and to flutter her hair she trembled and drew back that paralyzing experience was about to be renewed she turned deadly white and put her hand to her right ear oh james james she gasped do not pray do not speak what you want to say or i shall faint it is coming on i am not yet well enough to hear it write to me and i will answer for pity's sake do not speak it then she sank upon a seat "'and at that moment her aunt entered the conservatory. "'On the following day a note was put into her hand "'containing a formal proposal from the Honourable James Lawlor, "'and by return of post Julia answered with an acceptance. "'There was no reason whatsoever why the engagement should be long, "'and the only alternative mooted "'was whether the wedding should take place before or after Easter. "'Finally it was settled.' That it should be celebrated on Shrove Tuesday. This left a short time for the necessary preparations. Miss Fleming would have to go to town with her niece concerning a trousseau, and a trousseau is not turned out rapidly any more than an armed cruiser. There is usually a certain period allowed to young people who have become engaged to see much of each other, to get better acquainted with one another, to build their castles in the air and to indulge in little passages of affection, vulgarly called spooning. But in this case, the spooning had to be curtailed and postponed. At the outset, when alone with James, Julia was nervous. She feared a recurrence of those phenomena that so affected her. But although every now and then the wind curled and soft about her, it was not violent, nor was it chilling, "'and she came to regard it as a wail of discomfiture. "'Moreover, there was no recurrence of the detonation, "'and she fondly hoped that with her marriage "'the vexation would completely cease. "'In her heart was deep down a sense of exultation. "'She was defying James Hattersley "'and setting his prediction at naught. "'She was not in love with Mr. Lawlor. "'She liked him in her cold manner.' "'and was not insensible to the social advantage "'that would be hers when she became "'the Honourable Mrs. Lawlor. "'The day of the wedding arrived. "'Happily, it was fine. "'Blessed is the bride the sun shines on,' "'said the cheery Miss Fleming. "'An omen, I trust, "'of a bright and unruffled life in your new condition.' "'All the neighbourhood was present at the church. "'Miss Fleming had many friends.' Mr. Lawlor had fewer present, as he belonged to a distant county. The church path had been laid with red cloth, the church decorated with flowers, and a choir was present to twitter, the voice that breathed o'er Eden. The rector stood by the altar, and two cushions had been laid at the chancel steps. The rector was to be assisted by an uncle of the bridegroom who was in holy orders. The rector, being old-fashioned, had drawn on pale grey kid gloves. First arrived the bridegroom with his best man, and stood in nervous condition, balancing himself first on one foot, then on the other, waiting, observed by all eyes. Next entered the procession of the bride, attended by her maids, to the wedding march in Loengrin, on a wheezy organ. Then Julia and her intended took their places at the chancel step for the performance of the first portion of the ceremony, and the two clergy descended to them from the altar. Wilt thou have this woman to thy wedded wife? I will. Wilt thou have this man to thy wedded husband? I will. I, James, take thee, Julia, to my wedded wife, to have and to hold, to have and to hold, and so on. As the words were spoken, a cold rush of air passed over the clasped hands, numbing them, and began to creep round the bride and to flutter her veil. She set her lips and knitted her brows. In a few moments she would be beyond the reach of these manifestations. When it came to her turn to speak, she began firmly, I, Julia, take thee, James. But as she proceeded, the wind became fierce, It raged about her. It caught her veil on one side and buffeted her cheek. It switched the veil about her throat as though strangling her with a drift of snow contracting into ice. But she persevered to the end. Then James Lawlor produced the ring and was about to place it on her finger with the prescribed words, With this ring I thee wed, when a report rang in her ear followed by a heaving of her skull, as though the bones were being burst asunder, and she sank unconscious on the chancel step. In the midst of profound commotion, she was raised and conveyed to the vestry, followed by James Lawlor, trembling and pale. He had slipped the ring back into his waistcoat pocket. Dr. Crate, who was present, hastened to offer his professional assistance. In the vestry, Julia rested on a Glastonbury chair, white and still, with her hands resting in her lap. And to the amazement of those present, it was seen that on the third finger of her left hand was a leaden ring, rude and solid as though fashioned out of a bullet. Restoratives were applied, but fully a quarter of an hour elapsed before Julia opened her eyes and a little color returned to her lips and cheek. But as she raised her hands to her brow to wipe away the damp that had formed on it. Her eye caught sight of the leaden ring, and with a cry of horror she sank again into insensibility. The congregation slowly left the church, awestruck, whispering, asking questions, receiving no satisfactory answers, forming surmises all incorrect. I am very much afraid, Mr. Lalo, said the rector, that it will be impossible to proceed with the service to-day. It must be postponed till Miss DeMant is in a condition to conclude her part, and to sign the register. I do not see how it can be gone on with to-day. She is quite unequal to the effort. The carriage which was to have conveyed the couple to Miss Fleming's house, and then, later, to have taken them to the station for their honeymoon— The horses decorated with white rosettes, the whip adorned with a white bow, had now to convey Julia, hardly conscious, supported by her aunt, to her home. No rice could be thrown. The bell-ringers, prepared to give a joyous peal, were constrained to depart. The reception at Miss Fleming's was postponed. No one thought of attending. The cakes, the ices, were consumed in the kitchen. The bridegroom, bewildered, almost frantic, ran hither and thither, not knowing what to do, what to say. Julia lay as a stone for fully two hours, and when she came to herself, could not speak. When conscious, she raised her left hand, looked on the leaden ring, and sank back into senselessness. Not till late in the evening was she sufficiently recovered to speak and then she begged her aunt, who had remained by her bed without stirring, to dismiss attendance. She desired to speak with her alone. When no one was in the room with her, save Miss Fleming, she said in a whisper, Oh, Aunt Elizabeth, oh, Auntie, such an awful thing has happened. I can never marry Mr. Larlor, never. I've married James Hattersley. I'm a dead man's wife. At the time that James Lallor was making the responses, I heard a piping voice in my ear, an unearthly voice, saying the same words. When I said, I, Julia, take you, James, to my wedded husband, you know Mr Hattersley is James as well as Mr Lallor. Then the words applied to him as much or as well as to the other. And then, when it came to the giving of the ring, there was an explosion in my ear as before and the leaden ring was forced onto my finger and not james lallo's golden ring it is of no use my resisting any more i'm a dead man's wife and i cannot marry james lallo some years have elapsed since that disastrous day and in that incomplete marriage mr mont is mr mont still and she has never been able to remove the leaden ring from the third finger of her left hand. Whenever the attempt has been made, either to disengage it by drawing it off or by cutting through it, there has ensued that terrifying discharge as of a gun into her ear, causing insensibility. The prostration that has followed, the terror it has inspired, have so affected her nerves that she has desisted from every attempt to rid herself of the ring. She invariably wears a glove on her left hand, and it is bulged over the third finger where lies the leaden ring. She is not a happy woman, although her aunt is dead and has left her a handsome estate. She has not got many acquaintances. She has no friends, for her temper is unamiable and her tongue is bitter. She supposes that the world, as far as she knows it, is in league against her. Towards the memory of James Hattersley she entertains a deadly hate. If an incantation could lay his spirit, if prayer could give him repose, she would have recourse to none of these expedients, even though they might relieve her. So bitter is her resentment. And she harbors a silent wrath against providence for allowing the dead to walk and to molest the living. Okay, there you have it, the leaden ring. I hope that you enjoyed my performance of it. Initially, when I started recording it, I was using my normal Midwestern American accent for the characters, but, but there was a word early, early on that I think the aunt uses. And I thought, oh, you know, I'll bet this aunt is English. I'm not sure if the niece is. I, I read a little bit further, and then I decided, okay, no, both of these characters, in fact, everybody here is English. And so I went back and I, I revoiced the niece. Uh, I didn't really have to revoice the aunt. The, the start of the story is just dialogue. And that is an interesting way to go. I ought to try that in a, a story of mine. Just try it where you try and convey who the characters are through the dialogue and then have a paragraph where the narrator explains what's going on. Normally, I would start the story with the narrator explaining what's going on. So I was saying, I was on the fence about presenting this with you, to you, for you, of you. And what decided me was... Back in October of 2021, Marshall Latham, on his Journey Into podcast, presented an episode of a radio show of Tales from the Crypt, (laughs) the HBO horror comic adaptation, anthology, whatever you want to call it. It was, I'm assuming from the very early 21st century, but... I didn't do any research about where it came from. I had no idea that there was an audio drama of that show. The thing that's so remarkable about the Tales from the Crypt, <laughs> EC Comics from the 1950s that William Gaines published, and to a lesser extent, the HBO series, was just how despicable the main characters Usually were. It was a fun trick that Gaines used and his writers used, so that the reader, which I'm assuming was teen and preteen boys, would look forward to this character getting their comeuppance. And I was thinking about that while I was listening to Marshall's podcast. Your hey Marshall wears Mandalorian armor. And it reminded me of The Leaden Ring, because Julia is such a repugnant character. And we've all known people like her, but it's strange that there would be characters like her a century ago in popular fiction. She's just irredeemably bad. I. I I guess evil is the word that you could use. And I've thought a lot about evil recently. Anybody who lived through 2016 through 2021 has seen their share of it. And uh, I'm a writer and sometimes you'll have villainous characters and you try and write them. You don't want them to be too cartoonishly bad, but at the same time you don't want to go too far in the other direction because a lot of people do. Uh, I've heard it said, and I'm sure you have as well, that the villain is more interesting than the hero in stories, in movies, in certain kinds of movies, right? And a lot of times, a lot of times, the villain is better written than the hero, they've just got more to do. Maybe they've got more facets to them. We've all heard that a villain doesn't see themselves as a villain. They see themselves as the hero of their particular story and the hero of the story you're reading is a villain to them. And that, you know, there are some exceptions, but they're rare, I would think. In this story, the villainy is banal It's not flashy. It's not big. Julia is just a selfish, opportunistic girl. And if you were making a filmic adaptation of this story, it would be interesting to see how who you cast, first of all in the main character's role, and how you would present that character. Because what happens to her is awful, and it's all too easy to sympathize with her. You would not want to suffer what she is suffering. No one would. But this seems to be a very fundamentalist Christian-type morality story. You know, when I discovered that Bering Gould was an Anglican priest... I thought, oh, now that's interesting. You wouldn't think of priests writing horror stories like this. But it does teach a lesson, I suppose. But it's one of those really, really dark Old Testament lessons. And uh, maybe that goes hand in hand with religion, with the priesthood. I suppose if I were adapting this as a film you would start with maybe a friend of the aunt talking to her asking about this first failed relationship and the aunt gives some kind of rosy explanation for it painting the niece in a a much more sympathetic light and then the next scene you cut to is her with this guy that she breaks the heart of. And we can see by contrast the way the aunt described her and the way she truly is. Everybody adapts things in a different way, but I think that that's the way that I would do it. And you can just go ahead and have her be as unrepentantly cold as you want because this is our introduction to the character. And and the, the more awful she is to this poor guy, the better prepared, I suppose, the viewers will be for what comes next. But at the same time, there are actresses out there who are just so likable. They're affable, they have a charm to them. You put them in an, a villainous role and they are still enjoyable to watch. They are still somebody that you could root for. I've seen so many movies over the last 20 years where Sigourney Weaver plays a bad guy and there's always something to her that, that makes it difficult to absolutely hate her. And now obviously Sigourney Weaver is much more of the age to play the aunt, but that was just the first person that came into mind who is an actress who plays bad guys now I think, even so, you would have a difficult time making the audience not feel sorry for her, not want her to get out of this curse, this situation that she's in. I suppose that would be a challenge for a talented screenwriter to come up with, but he, he or she would have to decide at the very beginning how they wanted the audience to receive Julia. And anyhow, I'm not making a film adaptation of it, so I feel like I'm wasting my breath on this. But oh well. The situation of being haunted is something that has been part of literature for, for centuries and Gosh, I would kind of like to know what the reaction to this story would have been like when it came out. I'm not sure how successful a writer Baring Gould was. My thought is that if he had published 200 short stories, and apparently they are still discovering short stories that he published and attributing them to him, which is fun. But my guess is if you've published that much stuff, then you are a success. A lot of times these writers die penniless. But even somebody like Robert E. Howard, whose whole identity is tied to tragedy and potential that's never reached, you know, dying so young and by his own hand, he was extraordinarily successful and wealthy when he died. And Popular. I saw on YouTube just two days ago, I think, I was going on a jog and I like to put on music or YouTube videos where it's just a talking head, where you don't have to watch the screen. And there was an author and he was being interviewed about the nature of evil and how you write evil. It was a long interview. I'd say it was about 28 minutes long. Usually YouTube videos, I'll bet somebody somewhere has got it down to a science that you know, between seven and eleven minutes is the sweet spot for how long you want your YouTube video to be to fully monetize and to get the most viewers, et cetera, et cetera. I've never understood any of that stuff and and it's not a priority for me. But I think that for a character, a villain, to be truly evil, he or she needs to succeed. At least for the most part. Somebody who rises to power. Somebody who gains wealth, uh, who gets revenge on their enemies, who gets all the things that they want. A lot of times, you know, there's ingenuity enough within this person that they can get it. That they can achieve their goals. And how they do it largely helps distinguish between a heroic character and a villainous character. Villains tend to be more active than heroic characters. That's why they have better scenes for the most part. That's why they're more fun to write. That's why they're more enjoyable a lot of times to watch. A really good example from a movie that I didn't like at all is Christoph Waltz's character in *Inglorious Bastards. He's a truly chilling, terrifying character, but he's soft-spoken and he's polite and he's amiable and he laughs, but not in a supervillain sort of way. He's just jovial, a terrifying character. Very, very, very well done. A star-making character for him. And when he showed up in Spectre as Blofeld, he was playing a very similar part. When Blofeld shows up again in No Time to Die, he's still got that affableness to him. It must just be part of his character, or they wrote Blofeld with him in mind. But, you know... so. Bond villains are really, really fun, and they tend to be super arch, and it's always, you know, sit down, Mr. Bond, make yourself comfortable, you know, that kind of thing. I'm sure Blofeld in both movies said, sit down, James. He calls him James. I, I, I suppose that too many times we have seen petulant, childish, spoiled, shouting villains, and... That seems to be the idea in my mind that's that's what I picture when I think of a villain. but you know probably the, the most famous villain of my lifetime, Darth Vader is exceptionally well crafted in that he is he's the one that gets his hands dirty in that first Star Wars film. You know Tarkin is the main villain in Star Wars, and Vader is, you know, the chief henchman in a way, except for that he also is the dark wizard, and then he also is the one who, Tarkin can't be bothered with considering the rebels a threat at the end of the movie, but Vader is. Vader says several fighters have broken off from the main group. Come with me and he gets in a ship himself to take them out. And that is, it's just a stroke of genius on Lucas's part because it gives Vader an active role. Whereas Tarkin, I mean, all Tarkin has to do for the last half hour of the movie is wait, is just stand there. But Vader is in there picking off rebel fighters. He kills Biggs, Darklighter. And then when Han shows up and saves the day, Vader's ship is disabled but not destroyed, enabling him to return in a sequel. And oh my goodness, that is such, such a brilliant choice by whoever wrote Star Wars. You know, I say that knowing full well that that has to fall at the feet of of George Lucas. You know, he did have help uncredited help on the Star Wars screenplay, but that choice I think is all him. He wanted to tell more stories. And I think he felt like having this villain that has a strong connection to the hero and the two of them never meet causes frustration but also opens the door for expectations from the audience. The kids that were watching, the young people that were watching, knew that there is still a confrontation out there, or at least the possibility of one. And I love that. I I don't know why I mentioned, oh, Vader, he gets his hands dirty. He's the one that tortures Princess Leia. He's the one that goes into the Tantive IV and interrogates, quote unquote, Captain Antilles. He is the active villain, and that's great. Uh, Later, there would be some pathos with Vader. And, you know, he ceases to be just the absolute black and white villain. He still gets all the best dialogue in Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. The Emperor gets some really good dialogue, too. But boy, Vader is just... You can just feel that every word has been meticulously designed by Lawrence Kasdan in those second two films and in Rogue One, you could tell that they were trying to have the same Vader from Empire. It's structured in a funny way. He's not the main villain, he's not really even the secondary villain. I've never sat down and watched Rogue One and then Star Wars back to back and I wonder if that would be a satisfying experience since one leads into the other but i'm talking about star wars now and that was never my intention i wanted to talk about evil and when movies are made about today the politics of today it will be very interesting to see how evil is depicted because it's a, it's pretty unbelievable story wise what we've had happened these last few years and 40 years from now 50 years from now when kids watch a movie about 2020 they'll be like come on nobody really would have said that or you know that's not realistic if a politician were to do that they'd be put in jail they wouldn't and the kids would have to be convinced that this really happened it's not particularly believable. <laughs> like I said, uh, I, I won't be around 50 years from now to see what kind of stories are told about now. And I'm curious. I would really be interested to see how it is done. But the character of Julia in The Leaden Ring, I, I, I would be interested in hearing what a female listener thinks or a young person thinks. You know, she she's not bent on world domination. She's not responsible for thousands of deaths. She's not meddling with the powers of creation, anything like that. She's just a girl that wants to better her situation. And she doesn't care if she hurts other people in so doing, and that is an evil that is around us a lot of times. I meant to ask Marshall Latham this for his podcast, but I read, uh, I was reading a book the other day, and it said that there are three types of people. There are the people who are actively bad people that will hurt somebody if they can get away with it, who don't care about other people, who will take whatever they can take to hell with the consequences. Secondly, there are actively good people that look for situations where they can be of assistance, who see somebody that is suffering or in a bad position and they think, how can I help? That go out of their way, that inconvenience themselves To care for others. And then the third category is what most people are. And most people go along to get along. And they just put their head down and they try not to be particularly good. They try not to be outright evil. And when I heard that, I thought, huh, I wonder if Marshall would agree with that because He tends to be a really decent person. At least his online persona, let's say that, is of decency. Uh, You know, he's a religious person, and I am not. And religion requires you to accept that there is absolute good and absolute bad. But there's room for all sorts of different philosophies, even among religion. I'll have to talk to him about tales from the crypt. You know, those comic books were from the tail end of the golden age of comics. And that makes them really, really valuable. And rare. I I could do a whole episode about the anti comics hysteria of the 1950s. And I'm sure I've mentioned it multiple times, because it's, uh, you know, it's something that I didn't experience, but I know a lot about and that Stan Lee would talk about a lot when he was around because he was sort of the self-appointed spokesman for comic books, even doing a documentary about Superman or the Phantom. You would still want to talk to Stan Lee because he was the elder statesman, you know, he'd been around forever and the few of those comics that I've read, there is a deliciousness in seeing the tables get turned and seeing something bad happen to a character who was bad. Anyhow, there will be more to come. I recorded a story just yesterday from that same book and I really, really enjoy the narration of other people's work I hope that that shows, and I hope that you enjoy my presentations of these stories. I think it's fair to say that a lot of people would not read these stories nowadays unless you picked up a collection of (laughs) public domain British ghost stories, right? Well, as always, you can support me on Patreon if you so choose. I have an account over at www.patreon.com forward slash And I do a monthly address where I talk about what's going on in my life. I pick a little subject and I ruminate about it. And if you like my voice and my personality, then you would like that. And I would like more supporters you know, I'm well on my way of being one of those writers that dies penniless and unloved. And luckily, somebody in 2061 will say, wait, that, that Rich Outfield guy was pretty good. Oh, really? That's how he died? Ugh. So feel free to go over there and support me. You can pledge a dollar an episode. You could pledge two. It's much, much appreciated. So, from one friendly cryptkeeper to another, I bid you adieu, and I now pronounce you husband and wife. Good night. Whether by design or dreadful mistake, you have been listening to the podcast that dares not speak its name, which was produced under a Creative Commons 3.0 Attribution No Derivatives License. The music used in the episode was provided by Sir Kevin MacLeod, available from his website, incompetech.com. By all means, listen, download, share the file with your bitterest friends and most beloved enemies. But the file shan't be sold, edited, or claimed as your own. You'd never do that anyway. So why are we talking about it? Greetings. This is Rish Outfield. And you're listening to the Rish Outcast. Really, this should be one of those podcasts that dare not speak their name. It's hard to say that plurally. This should be one of those podcasts that dare not speak its name episode Episodes. Well Katiana could Well Katiana could take it or leave it. Oh, but did Heaven caven chupad? Well Katiana could take it or leave it. Oh, but did Tevin love Halloween? Laura had never learned to ice skate herself, but promised to learn in the new year. Okay. Uh, let's try this sentence. I'm. Uh, how do you spell pastime? Laura had never learned to ice skate herself, and Holcomb thought it was a fool's pastime since she'd been able to levitate, since she'd been able to levitate in the air for fun since she was three or four years old, but promised to learn in the new year. I'm going to turn that into two sentences. Laura had never learned. To... I'm going to put a dash in and show off. Okay. So let's do it yet another time. I bet that's two minutes wasted. Laura had never learned to ice-skate herself, but promised to learn in the new year. Old Widow Holcomb... Hey, <laughs> yeah, I used to, however. Um, what's the the John... not John Lennon, the Paul McCartney song? Okay, <laughs> fifth time's the charm, right? Old Widow Holcomb, however, considered skating a fool's pastime, since she had been able to levitate in the air for fun, since she was three or four years old. <laughs> since she had been able to levitate in the air for fun since the time she was three or four years old. The show-off. Simply having a wonderful Christmas time, by some one-hit wonder Lara had forgotten the name of, began to play. She watched the skaters. She watched the skaters slowly. She watched the skaters slowly going round and round, and picked one, a Hispanic teen girl, a Hispanic teen girl, to be the target of her spell. The girl was heavy-set and probably the worst skater in her group, but laughed every time she fell, and seemed to be having a good time with her friends. But laughed every time she fell, and seemed to be enjoying herself with her giggling friends. This is fun! I'm throwing in new little words here and there. But laughed every time she fell, and seemed to be really enjoying herself with her giggling friends. And seemed to be truly enjoying herself with her giggling friends. And I believe the original Tales from the Crypt (laughs) series that was on HBO started in late 1989. I didn't have HBO growing up, but my uncle did at his house. And lucky me, uh, around Halloween of 89, it might have been Christmas of 89, uh, lucky me, late 1989, they did a marathon of episodes, and I did get to watch that, and I just, oh, I ate it up. I thought it was, I was the perfect age for it, the perfect mindset for it, and it would be quite a while before I could see any more episodes, but I remember, it might've been Halloween 1990, uh, HBO did a marathon of Tales from the Crypt episodes, and I think they showed all of the episodes that had aired thus far on like Halloween day and my neighbors had HBO and uh, allowed me to bring over a VHS tape and just record all six hours of it. (laughs) That's that. I I guess I'm over explaining. Let's let this all be in outtakes.